0: Everybody, welcome to Riverside, a couple of quick announcements to hit while the kids are filtering out to class. Women of Riverside community, our ladies group, meets this Monday night, not here at the building. And so if that's something that you would like to be a part of, you need to reach out to the phone number in the bulletin and they will tell you where it's going to be this week. Uh, No Bible study this week, and so uh, don't show up or you will be lonely, although, you know, Jesus says where two or more are gathered in my name, so if there are a couple of you, it'll all be okay, I suppose. Men's breakfast Saturday, 9 a.m., bring your work gloves. We are going to put out the flower barrels so that we can start uh, having people adopt flower barrels and get some color uh, out there in uh, front of the building at least for a couple of months, And then uh, Mother's Day is coming in two weeks. We always honor all of the ladies at Riverside on Mother's Day, whether you are a mom or you ever had one. And so what we do is we have a slideshow at the end of uh, each Mother's Day service, uh, sort of celebrating all the ladies of our church. And so what I need is three pictures of the ladies from this church with their kids or their moms or any combination thereof. You can send them to my email address. It is in the bulletin. And uh, make sure when you send them to me that you let me know which service you're going to be at. Because if we tried to put everybody's pictures from all four of the services in one slideshow, it would be like those subliminal messages you see sometimes. go, blah, blah, blah. you'd be like, what did I just see? Anyway, so uh, yeah, make sure uh, I need them by the Friday before Mother's Day. So get those sent to me whenever you get a chance. All right, uh, part thirty seven in this lesson series looking at the story of the Bible and today we are to the absolute pinnacle of the great rescue which may seem like a bold statement when we've just gotten done talking about the resurrection and the crucifixion and and and, you know by the time we're done today I hope that you will understand why I consider this to be the apex, the the pinnacle of this story, of what the entire Bible has been all about. You may disagree, you may go home thinking, nah, I still think the pinnacle was the resurrection, but at least by the time we get done, I hope you'll know why I think this is the pinnacle of the great rescue. And and today's story picks up where last week's story left off. Remember on Resurrection Sunday, uh, we saw how the women went to the tomb, and it was empty, and the angel was there and says, he's risen. Go tell his disciples. So they rush back to where the disciples are staying, and they tell him, we, we saw a, an angel. The tomb is empty. The angel says he's alive. Then Mary Magdalene comes running back in, having seen Jesus, not just an angel. She says, it's true. I saw him. Well, they're not quite sure what to think. Two of Jesus' disciples leave. They, they start going home to a little town called Emmaus. That's where we were last week. Jesus disguises himself and walks along with them for hours. They don't realize it's him. He gets back to their house with them. He goes in to eat and he sort of springs the surprise party or prank, whatever you want to call it, um, and, and shows them that it's him and then immediately disappears. And they run back to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem. They go to where the disciples are. They start telling them it's true. We saw him. He was alive. He was walking with us. He was telling us all this stuff. And while they're telling their story, Jesus appears suddenly in the middle of a room where all the doors are locked. He just, boom, he is there. He says, peace. Now, I imagine they are having exactly the opposite of that emotion at that moment. I don't think he could have scared them anymore if he had said, boo. Right when he came in, um, peace probably had exactly the same impact as Boo would have. But they're terrified, and so he tries to calm them down. He says, "No, no, no! Look, it's me. I'm not a ghost. They thought he was a ghost. He's like, no, I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and bones, right? Ghosts don't have that. Look, here's the holes in my hands, my feet, and my side. He says, "Give me a piece of fish. I'll eat it. I'll prove it to you. I'm, I'm. It's really me." They give him a fish. He eats it. And then the Bible says, Jesus opens their minds so that they can understand everything that's happened. Everything that was in the Old Testament, that was written about him, how he fulfilled all of it in in his life, what their part in this whole thing, what it meant, what it means, what it will mean. All of a sudden, all of that makes sense to them. Now, at some point, Jesus leaves. And unfortunately for this guy named Thomas, he wasn't there, right? One of, the, one of the 12 apostles, Judas is gone at this point. So when Jesus comes, there's only 10 of the apostles there. We don't know for sure where Thomas is, but uh, he was not with them. So Thomas gets back and they're like, Thomas, it's true. He's alive. He was here. And Thomas says, I can't, I can't believe it until I see it myself. And so eight days go by which must have been an awkward tension going on there between this one guy who didn't get to see Jesus and these other guys who not only saw him, Thomas probably can tell. They seem to understand things we never understood before. I still don't quite get it. And then eight days later, Jesus shows up again. And he says to Thomas, okay, here you go. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Touch me. And Thomas, all of his conditions for belief are suddenly gone. He just falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who never saw and yet they believe. And that's us, right? Now people will say sometimes, how can we, how can we believe? How can we rely on the testimony of the apostles? I mean, what if they were just making it up? What if, what if they were just power hungry and they wanted to start a movement? And so Jesus is dead and they thought, yeah, this will do it. What if it was always just supposed to be a metaphor? It was just supposed to be some nice story and suddenly somehow they've kind of somebody got a hold of it and they turned it into this literal, actual resurrection from the dead. The thing that makes me believe it more than anything else, other than what you know, Jesus is still changing lives 2,000 years later, that's the number one thing. But the thing that makes me believe the apostles is... They start dying for this testimony that Jesus is alive. That's what that, that was what they got called into court for. The word martyr, which we now think means dying for your faith, right? What it, what it originally meant was it was just the word for witness. And the reason that the Christians were called martyrs and that that equated to death is because when the Romans... See, the Romans could care less if you said... Jesus was the best teacher who ever lived. They couldn't even care less if you said, he's a God. He died, and his body is there in the tomb, but now he is in heaven. Uh, Spiritually, he is a God, because see, that's what Julius Caesar was to the Romans. But when you started saying, no, our God isn't dead. His body isn't laying in the ground, moldering somewhere. He came out of the grave. He defeated death. That's when the Romans lost their minds, because Jesus could not be greater than Julius Caesar. And so that's what, the, that's, that's what the trials all revolved around. They would put a Christian in the witness seat, in the martyr seat, and say, admit that he's not alive, or we will kill you. And what you have over a period of about 250 years is, as far as I can tell, not one instance of somebody saying, all right, you got me, we made it up. Because people will die for a few things, right? People will die for someone that they really love and care about. But nobody's going to die for a lie, right? You, you put me on the witness stand after I stole the bones or I made up this story. And you say, admit it or you're, or you're, you're going to die. I'm like, okay, you got me. All right, yes, we made it up, right? But these apostles, every single one of them with one exception, die horrible deaths. And all they would have had to do to get out of it was say, you're right, We lied. And so Thomas, he has to live with that for eight days, right? Then he gets his, his vision, he gets his, his, his witness of the resurrection, and, and, and eventually he will die in India. Horrible death. Same exact, same exact trial. Admit that he's not dead. Thomas says, I can't, can't do it. Do your worst. So when John is done describing this, right, he gets all done. And that's when he says this in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his followers that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then, by believing, you may have life through his name. This is the purpose statement and the conclusion of the book of John all rolled into one. Now there's another chapter. John goes on, he adds another chapter, chapter 21, where he talks about it's sort of like a mopping up, like an epilogue. You know, I don't know if you read The Hobbit or any of the Lord of the Rings books. They all kind of do this. You have the you have the pinnacle, you have the conclusion, and then they're sort of like, and then this happened. Just kind of let you know kind of what happened, how everything kind of got mopped up. We'll be talking about that next week. About Jesus fishing with his friends up in Galilee and sort of what happens there. But but this Every scholar that you read, you read a commentary, will say, this is the conclusion, it's the apex, it is the pinnacle of John's gospel. And so what is it about the story that was just told by John about the disciples and Jesus is coming to see him and then Thomas comes later and he doubts, but then Jesus comes again and he responds with, my Lord, and my God. What is it about that that makes it the pinnacle of the great rescue? Well, what I want to do is I want to kind of draw three lessons from this story about the great rescue and about resurrection that, uh, that I think will kind of hopefully explain that. And then you can do with it what you're going to do with it. So the first uh, thing that this story teaches us, I guess I'd say, is that there is physical life after death. Physical life after death. Now, you may be saying, well, duh, Pastor Ed, isn't that what the whole Bible is about, <laughs> that, there's, that there's life after death? Yeah, but do we really think of it as physical life after death? You know, I don't know. If you closed your eyes and thought, pictured the afterlife, what would it look like? What would it be like? You know, what what do you picture yourself doing there? What do you picture is going on there? Because you can look at Revelation, and John kind of has this vision of what's going on in heaven. But it's, 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 I mean, it's not exactly what's going to be going on. It's very metaphorical. It's very allegorical. It's very like, you know, it's like, and so I don't know what you picture when you think what's going to happen. What, What is literally going to happen when I get there? But the Bible's picture is this very physical and spiritual combined afterlife. We talked on Easter Sunday about this funeral that Jesus goes to for his friend Lazarus. He's four days late. And when he gets there, Martha, one of Lazarus's sisters, comes to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. And Jesus says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, I know. At at the resurrection, he will rise again. And Jesus says this in John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Now, it sounds like he's saying the same thing that Martha just said, right? It's like, I, can't, I don't know if he gets done saying that, and she's like, yeah, isn't that what I just said? You know, but he's, he's, well, first of all, he's got something completely different in mind for Lazarus, right? This means something completely different for Lazarus. He knows Lazarus is about to literally live even after dying. But for the rest of us, it's like this is a reminder that, that life goes on even after dying. And it's a very physical life. In Luke 24, I already read this to you, but this is kind of part of the story that I just told you. It says, as, as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it is really me. Literally what he says is, it is me, myself. And, you know, I don't know what you picture about the, the afterlife, but this is, a, this is a snapshot of it. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, our resurrection bodies will be like this, like Jesus' resurrection body. He, he passes through locked doors without having to have them open. We saw on Easter Sunday, he doesn't come out of the tomb when the stole, stone is rolled away. He's already gone. When the stone is rolled away. He doesn't come before the disciples and floats like an apparition, you know, in the corner. That's not what's going on. He stands before them. His he this is a very physical presence. And I, I spent this week trying to think: what must this moment have been like for the disciples, right? What must it, you know, it's like, poof, there he is. You're scared, then you're joyous, then, you know. And I saw something on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, I remember when I saw it, I thought, I'm using that when we get to the story of Jesus just suddenly coming and showing his disciples that that he's not really gone. I think it might have looked a little bit like this. It looks something like that, right? It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (gasps) You know, I I don't know exactly, but but you kind of get the picture. And when they went to Jesus, there it's not like their hands went through him, they could hug him, they could touch him. John makes sure he says it at the beginning of his gospel, he is telling us again now, even after his death, you could touch him. Jesus goes on, he says in Luke 24, verse 39. Touch me, make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. They still stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Physical life after death. We have no category for this in our human brains, right? We can picture a spirit that can pass through walls or we can picture a body that can be touched and can eat a piece of fish. But how do you have a body that passes through walls and a spirit that can be touched and ha- and eat a piece of fish? We got no category for it. But the Bible was constantly trying to tell us, this is what's coming. This is what's coming. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Job is the most ancient book in the entire Old Testament. It doesn't tell the oldest story. It was written about the time of Abraham. But... Moses doesn't sit down to write the words of Genesis in the beginning until hundreds of years later. And then he tells the story about Abraham, but Job has already been written. And in Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at the last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. will see him for myself. And I don't know about you, but I read that, I go, huh? After my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. What does, what is he talking about? Resurrection, right? He knew it thousands of years before Jesus walked this earth. He had this vision of what would happen, that at the last day, his Redeemer would come. And it says, stand upon the earth. Literally, what it says in the Hebrew is, he will stand against the earth. Now, they translate it upon, because that's kind of awkward language. What does it mean, he will stand against the earth? You know what I think it means? What happens to decayed bodies? They end up. Where do they end up? They end up in the earth, right? In graves, if we're that lucky. If not, the, there are oceans that contain the decayed bodies of God's people. There are rivers. There are mountains and deserts and arctic wastelands and when job says i know my redeemer is coming and one day he will stand against the earth i think he's picturing the redeemer coming and standing up against the earth and saying give me back my people and after our bodies have decayed yet in our bodies we will see god we will see him ourselves the apostle paul put it this way in 1 corinthians chapter 15 verse 42 it's the same way with resurrection of the dead our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Spiritual bodies? He talking about? Because I don't know about you. It seems to me like what most of us think is we've got this body and there's a spirit inside of it. And that is kind of the way that it is now. But when Jesus is resurrected, that it's, he's not saying, look, it's me. I'm inside of this, right? This will go away eventually. But right now I'm in here. No, it is me myself. The perfect marriage and unity of of body and spirit and soul, the way that it was in Eden before sin entered the world and the way that it will be again one day, that all of us will be one day. So that's the first thing that we learn: is that there is physical life after death. The second thing we learn from this story is that there is also spiritual life before death. Because a lot of times I think we get the impression that eternal life is something that starts when we die. Jesus Jesus taught something completely different than that. When Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, then you will live even after you've died. And then he goes on in John chapter 11, verse 25. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And I used to think he was saying the same thing. If you believe in me, you will live even though you die. And if you believe in me, you will never, ever die. It's like, isn't that? No, he's, he's making a contrast. He's like, he's talking about one thing that will happen after our physical deaths. He's talking about something else that can start here and now. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this point because this is what we spend most of every weekend on here at Riverside. How do I start my resurrection and enter into eternal life right now? But look at what Jesus says in uh, John chapter five, verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. Not will have, but have it, present tense. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. We spent about an hour talking about this a couple of weeks ago at our Wednesday night Bible study. What does that even mean? It boggles your mind, right? It's like, uh, what, what What did he just say? How is that possible? And the sooner we get started with this, the sooner we get started entering from death into life, the brighter our lives will shine. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says that all of us, every single one of us, all of us, can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him and reflect his glory Even more. It's a process. And the sooner you get started with your resurrection, with your eternal life, the brighter your life is going to shine this side of eternity. And so we learn those two things. We learn physical life after death, spiritual life before death. But we learn this third thing that's the most important lesson, I think, in this entire story, and that is that the great rescue requires a response. In order to get that life, it requires a response from us. And Thomas gives us that response. In John 20, verse 24, uh, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord, but he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap, I think. Whenever we think of Thomas, we think of doubting Thomas, right? Because he said, I can't believe it until I see it and touch it for myself. I just can't believe it. But it's really interesting. I already read it to you, and I don't know if you caught it. But when Jesus comes and Thomas is gone, and he comes and sees the rest of the disciples, this is exactly what it says. It says, In Luke chapter 24 verse 36. I already read it, but look at it again and think about how much this sounds like what he says to Thomas. Why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. We're going to see in just a second. It's almost exactly what he sees to Thomas. And yet we call Thomas doubting Thomas. I've never heard of doubting Matthew or doubting Bartholomew or doubting Peter or doubting John or James or whoever else you want to talk about. No, those guys don't get that label, even though this is what it requires for them to believe. When Jesus comes and sees Thomas, this is what he says to him. John 20, verse 27, he says to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Almost exactly the same thing. But Thomas's reaction is special. Thomas says to him, he he drops his conditions, right? It's like he he tells the disciples, here are my conditions for belief. I see him and I actually touch him. I I put my fingers in the holes. That's my conditions. I won't believe otherwise. Jesus shows up, his conditions are gone. And he drops to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God, the single most amazing statement of faith that you will find in the entire Bible. There are some pretty amazing ones there. Peter, Martha has a pretty amazing one. There are several. This one is by far the strongest and the most amazing declaration of faith that you will find in the entire Bible, and it belongs to a guy that we call Doubting Thomas. And it just staggers me. And it's the absolute pinnacle of John's gospel. Now, this week, I started to realize for the first time that the pinnacle of the great rescue, right, the the conclusion of the great rescue is almost like the exact mirror opposite of the the pinnacle or the conclusion of one of my favorite movies, Ghostbusters. Um, It's like the mirror image of it. And uh, so I wanted to show you that real quick before we're done. The exact mirror image of the pinnacle of the great rescue, right? In the Ghostbusters, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes, you pretend to be a god. In the book of John, if someone, if, if, so, if, if, if someone, and that someone is you, says, you're a god, and you should have conditions that you place upon any kind of belief that you put up in Jesus and say, I will believe in you if, which is what Thomas had done, And what John says is, no, if someone asks you if you're a God, you say no. You say, as you look at Jesus, my Lord and my God. See, that is what this entire thing has been all about from Genesis until John chapter 20. Everything that we have looked at over the last several months, the great rescue, putting it all into getting it all set up in the Old Testament, putting it into effect with the Gospels. And now we get here. And John doesn't write this story so that you'll know so much what happened to Thomas. It's like that's sort of a a side thing. What John writes this story for is to bring Jesus and put him before each one of us and say, what are you going to do with him? You got conditions for your belief? You say, well, I'll believe in him if he does this for me and does that for me, if he helps me to do this or if he does that. It's like John's trying to say, no, that's not one of the options. Thomas had those those same beliefs. And when Jesus was finally placed before him, all of those conditions were dropped. See, the Bible isn't written so that I can say, yeah, I believe that God is the Lord. Not so that I can say, yes, I believe that Jesus is God, but so that we will look at him and say, my Lord. My God. I want to finish with where we started in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. His purpose statement, remember? Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his followers that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then by believing that you may have life through his name. It's incredibly personal. John wrote this book for you. The other uh, gospels were written for you. The entire Old Testament is there so that you could be brought to this one point, this one moment in time where the, the crucified and risen Savior stands in front of you and, and, and John says, what are you going to do with him? And he's hoping that you will say, my Lord and my God terrifying thing to say, right? It was for me. I was like, what happened? What if I do that? What's that going to mean? What's he going to do with me? <laughs> right? Because I grew up in church. I saw people that I was like, I do not want to be like them. I can't imagine living. That if that's who Jesus is, I don't know if I can actually say my Lord and my God. As a matter of fact, if I didn't need someone to save my life, I don't know that I ever would have said those words, but I did. And I did. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to assume that what everybody told me about Jesus is true. I'm going to say, my Lord, my God, and then I will figure out what that means for me. And you know what I figured out? Jesus in Ed looks different than Jesus looks in anybody else. And over the last 20 years that I've been involved in ministry, I've noticed Jesus in you guys looks different than he looks in Anybody else. Don't let anybody else tell you, you, if you say, my Lord and my God, that means this. No, say the words, drop your conditions, and then let him show you what that's going to mean. I guarantee you it will be better than anything you could have possibly imagined on your own. It's what this whole thing has been about. The absolute pinnacle of the great rescue. Not what happens to Thomas, but what happens to each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son to rescue us, that you thought that we were worth it. And so, Lord, as we all stand here with John, having brought us before the risen Savior of the entire world, and not just the world, or not only the world, but of each one of us, Lord, give us the grace and the wisdom to drop the conditions of believing in him and to say, my Lord, my God, And then show each one of us exactly what that's going to look like going on from here. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ed. All right. Remember to get those pictures.